do either of you know that you're going to die? He's like, well, of course I know. But do you know? Would you want to be told that you were dying? I'd be like, absolutely. Like, you would. please. Yeah. I, I need to go see New Zealand, man. <laughs> but because I'm not. But you are, though. Yeah. But that's the thing. But you are dying. I know. So it's like. You, so you got to go see boat. New Zealand. Tolstoy saying rather explicitly, like the way to deal with death is be close to it. Be part of it. We've all got to die one day. Why shouldn't I give you a hand? And I hope that in me giving you a hand, like when I'm dying, someone gives me a hand. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Sydney and Melissa about Tolstoy's novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. A couple small quotes of the day from Tolstoy's longish essay called What is Art? The business of art lies just in this, to make that understood and felt which, in the form of an argument, might be incomprehensible and inaccessible. He goes on to say, To evoke in oneself a feeling one has once experienced, and having evoked it in oneself, then by means of movements, lines, colors, sounds, or forms expressed in words, so to transmit that feeling that others may experience the same feeling. This is the activity of art. And for a chat about one of the best examples I know of something that is understood and felt, and that cannot really be put into the form of an argument, let's go into that chat about the death of Ivan Ilyich. Hi, Sydney. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And how are you, Melissa? Uh, I'm doing good. <laughs> you, you both have agreed to meet me today to spend an hour talking about death. So I like this little novella a lot. It's a story about how bad we are at thinking about death. You know, we avoid it. We avoid thinking about death. We avoid talking about death. America, just as a country, is bad at thinking about death and talking about death. I think even religious Americans are bad at talking about death. Through history, there may have been some cultures who have gotten this right, an attitude. What, what, what I mean by that is there may have been some cultures who have perfected an attitude towards death, but I doubt it. I'm not sure. I think death is a human problem. I think everyone has always been afraid of death and has always avoided thinking about it and talking about it. So I see the avoidance of death as the main topic of this novel. You know, Tolstoy, enough avoiding it. Let's stare at it. Let's watch a man die and not blink and not look away. I'm going to start by asking you this kind of uh, slightly personal, uh, morbid question. Have, have you ever seen someone die? So I work as the assistant to the assistant paralegal at a place that, at a place that does um, trust and wills. And I 100% agree with you. Like these people come in and they're we're like basically gamblers with life and they like don't do their legal paperwork. They don't do anything. And then they come to us with these cases and they're like, oh, so I didn't want everything to go to this son whom I hate, but that's how it is. And they're mad at us. And it's like, no, you didn't prepare because you thought you had like 30 years left of your life. And then the spouse died and turns out like the other spouse doesn't have control of the house or something like that. So we're definitely huge gamblers just with life. And something that you said earlier in the last podcast was how like 
death gives life meaning. And I think you have to realize that and really face death. So no, I haven't faced it directly, but with work, um, I've definitely seen a lot of it. Sydney, what about you? I had an aunt who was, she had MS. And so she was bedridden for the last 10 years of her life. And I was able to have this lengthy conversation with her about a week, a week before she died. And, um, it was a moment that broke open some of my ideas of not only what it meant to be dying and seeing your life slip away from you with every breath, but also she was going through her own life and taking inventory of what she'd done, what she felt, Mm. who she was. And it was incredibly heavy, not only because her, her mortality was in the balance, but because her um, very existence was kind of running through her mind. This is very interesting. Sometimes I ask classes, I ask classes this question, you know, have you ever seen anyone die? It's people who have are in the minority. It's not a common thing, especially for people as young as you, you know, we avoid it. You know, we put the elderly and the aged into other buildings and we only visit them sometimes. And when they die, we talk about talk about their lives. I think we are like too scared to think about the mental terror that they were faced with to ever really talk about it. So we think about where, so we talk about where they have gone to now, or we talk about their happiest memories, their best days. We so strongly avoid what it means to gradually cease existing. It's terrifying. This is on one hand, not a very exciting story. A man gets sick and dies. Um, but it is kind of provocative on the other hand, let's not look away from this. So I want to kind of go through in order, not, not page by page, but I do kind of want to go through slightly chronologically. This novella has a very interesting structure. It's, I think 12 chapters. The first four chapters span 40 years of Ivan Ilyich's life. The next four chapters span a few months. And the final four chapters span only a few weeks or maybe a few days. And the last page maybe spans you know, a few hours. What is it? I think the structure is totally genius. Why has Tolstoy chosen to organize his novel this way? He talks a lot about, like, there's a quote that he says he thought that his life should go pleasantly and decently. Ivan did? And that's how he, like, lives his life. And that's how he thinks that his life should be lived is pleasantly, decently, and easily. And I think what this novel does an amazing job of showing of when his life stopped becoming that. They focused a lot on like his marriage and which was interesting to me and how try to make that pleasant and decent without dealing with it. But it was interesting, like the last hours of his life is when he was going through the most in his life that wasn't pleasant. And so it's just like focusing on those times. And it was sad how quickly his life could be summed up. (laughs) Rereading this is such a good point. Rereading this in preparation for our chat, I thought, wait, when does this get good? (laughs) I mean, it's good. It's good from page one because we have some very funny moments, you know, it's quite a funny book. There's that funny bit where he doesn't know if he should bow or cross himself. He enters, so he kind of does this weird dance and he's like looking around and then he sits on that couch with that spring in it and the spring keeps, it's kind of funny. The first few chapters might strike one as unexciting because the life that they describe is a non-life, totally unexciting. So it can just be summed up in, you know, just a few chapters. He starts with the death. That's like our first, right? Like page one, the death of Ivan Elyse. 
but it's almost like as the story goes on, he comes to life. Like he's dead the first bit. Uh-huh. And then as like it goes further until we get the last few hours is when for me, like he's truly alive. And so I think that's an interesting detail that Tolstoy is is materializing in the structure of the novel. So, yeah, this is, I've never, I've never thought of it this way, but there's a kind of resurrection that's implied in the structure. On the first page, he's a corpse. And on the last pages, as he's dying, he is the most alive that he's ever been. It's very, very interesting. One thought I had with the structure is, I just think time goes by faster in youth. Don't you think, you know, when, I don't know, when you look past on your life, you think, oh, that was, you know, Suddenly I'm an adult now. How did that happen? And uh, it's not something that you can grab onto. It's constantly slipping away, constantly slipping away. Another reason maybe that it starts at the end, I hadn't thought of this resurrective element. That's a good comment, but it has to start at the end because to do the funeral stuff after this kind of internalized epiphany would be anticlimactic. You know what I mean? So that's one practical reason why the novel has to start with this announcement of the death. I think it just gives us a bigger appreciation for like the hero's journey type thing that he goes through. You see his life and you're like, this is it. And then you you get to see just how impactful this was and really who he is. You could be someone at that funeral, but by the end, you're more than that. Like you're with the servant who is helping him out. You understand him, which is one of his greatest struggles that he like feels no one understands him. So like you understand, you're able to have empathy for him. And so I think that's another really great, awesome way that the structure of the story is built. Yeah, because we've all we've all been in rooms in which the news of someone's death is announced and we think, oh, this is it's almost routine. You know, it's like, okay, that's sad. Um, and we react kind of in a routine way to this news. And we don't fully realize that this person had an interiority just like us. So the novel is mimicking that experience. Here is how everyone else reacts as if this is just rooted. It's a slight obstacle in or in our way of playing bridge tonight, you know, but we'll still be able to, don't worry. We'll still be able to. And then Tolstoy slowly convinces us. No, Ivan was a person, you know, he was a person. How do his acquaintances react? I've already slightly spoiled that question. How do his acquaintances react? And how do you react to their reactions? I was going to say something similar to what you said, Michael, about this routine. It seems like death is an inconvenience. There's like no remorse or sadness. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of grief. I mean, there's a lot of social obligation. It seems like it costs time, costs Mm -hmm. money. It seems very routine as if like this is just gonna happen it's monotonous it's tedious no one enjoys being there and there's a funny moment where her shawl gets cut on the bottom of like a table or something and it's like that consumes uh his friend's mind more than the death of his friend yeah and like should i bow or should i cross myself he didn't know (laughs) he's more worried about how he looks than about the loss of this person so this is on page two on hearing of ivan Ilyich's death the first thought of each of the gentlemen assembled in the office was of what this death might mean in terms of transfers or promotions of the members themselves or of their acquaintances. That's their first reaction. Their second reaction is you see he's dead and I'm not. Why do we, why we do this? Humans do this. Why do we do that? 
just again at my work whenever someone dies there's like a process of legal work and so we're all like no someone died <laughs> because suddenly it's a, a big chore yeah yeah and I had that quote down too and then there's another one that I thought was really interesting as the friend is at this mural but at once he did not know himself the usual thought came to his aid that this had happened to Ivan Illich and not to him and that it should and could not happen to him and in thinking so he had succumbed to a gloomy mood which ought not to be done and having reasoned thus he calmed down and began asking with interest about the details of Ivan's end as if death was an occurrence proper only to Ivan but not at all to him and so I think it's interesting how we don't accept that that's our future kind of like growing old with young people or like paying taxes, <laughs> like you, you think it's for someone else, but then like not for you. And so the way that these people are acting, you're like, don't you realize that this is going to happen to you? And like, you should be caring a little bit more. How, here's a question. I want to, I want to get personal for a minute. Do you, do either of you know that you're going to die? Are you actually aware of this? He's like, well, of course I know, but do you know? Let me, let me ask it a different way. How many minutes in a day or a week, you can answer whichever question you'd like. How many minutes in a day or a week do you spend in a full acknowledgement that you are finite? <laughs> How many minutes a day? I, I want an answer. Do you, do you actually know that you are going to die? I'll let Sydney go. <laughs> can you know this? Is it, maybe this is a better question. Is this even a thing that you can know? Is the body so allergic to this idea that it's not even an idea? I mean, there are those Roman generals, you know, you've, you've heard of these Roman generals and emperors who they would enter a battle on these like parades, these triumphs into Rome and... In this moment of glory, in this moment of triumph, they would have these people behind them whispering in their ear, you are mortal, you will die. Why did they do this? And why do we constantly forget that we're going to die? I think we forget because we're still riding the coattails of humanism where man is the measure of all things. So if we don't acknowledge that, then how can it be real? And we are the center of it all. And so I think we have this idea in our culture and perhaps in our society that if we don't acknowledge that it's coming, it won't come. Yeah. And I think I think when you ask like how many times a week or a day, I think a lot of times when I'm feeling pain, I'm like, well, this will this will end one day. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Okay. Um, so I think slightly morbid thought. <laughs> yeah, especially emotional pain. Like um, Rilke has a, a line that says, no feeling is final. Oh, wow. And I, that thought, that line just crosses my mind a lot. And I also think no being is final. Like this is, this is kind of all fleeting. Hmm. So I've been re I've been thinking about this novella for about a week in preparation for this chat and rereading it. I'm I, I hope I'm not wasting time because there's lots of other moments in the novel we need to get to. We need to keep moving forward here. But I think what this novel illustrates for me is that we can't, I am the people around Yvonne's uh, in, in the funeral. 
even reading a book about death, thinking about my own mortality, I still mostly the past week I've been paying more attention. What I mostly have been thinking about is all those dishes I have to go do. What's for dinner tomorrow? The grading that needs to happen. Uh, the yard that is looking messier and messier every day. Getting my kids out of the house on time for school. Just the day-to-day stuff that consumes all of my attention. I think, oh yeah, you're going to die. Remember what Ivan Ilyich teaches you. You're going to die. I think, well, that, I don't have time to think about that. Just don't have time. Don't have time. I'm I'm constantly putting it off, aware that I'm putting it off, and therefore I'm I'm aware that I'm guilty of the very lack of awareness that this novel is criticizing, that this novel is pointing out. Do you see what I mean? I think it's a, it's actually impossible. You know, I promise we'll move. We'll start moving forward through this book. I promise. You know, there are those pop songs or those weird songs, those weird posters that are like, live every day as if you were dying. Here's a question. Is it possible to live every day as if it was the last day of your life? A. And B, is that good? Is that a good way to live? I have strong feelings about this. Okay, to start, I I don't think about death, like, ever. Um, (laughs) Like, in Notes to the Underground, one of the points was like, how you like need to feed people physical bread and then they like can go to like the virtuous bread but like you still need to eat that virtuous bread that food for future years like you gotta like take time for it and stuff so I definitely feel that and I need to think more about it but life can be just overwhelming if oh yeah it seems like all the little things like when he's building his house for example in the book um like that's just takes up so much of his time and work takes up so much time and friends, his friends take up so much time. And then like, he doesn't actually get to what makes life meaningful. That's right. And in, this is going to sound silly, but in like the Tim McGraw song, live like you were dying in one of the verses, he's like, um, I was like, finally the husband I always wanted to be like, he was kinder and he like forgave people. And I think in that element, you should like you should be kind to children like you should have meaningful relationships and you should be kind and you should forgive so in that element I do think that you should live like you were dying a question that was presented on this book was would you want to be told that you were dying I'd be like absolutely like you would. please yeah I I need to go see New Zealand man <laughs> like, <laughs> like I would some stuff that I would want to do but because I'm not but you are though yeah. But that's the thing, but you are dying. I know. So it's like you, I need So to you got to go see myself. New Zealand. Exactly. So saving up for that. Uh like what you were saying like death is coming and yeah. like you need to live because you are dying and focused yeah. on what matters. I think of uh Sydney Carton, you know, a life you love. It's like Yvonne forgot to live a life that he loved. He forgot because he was too worried about he thought that he loved furniture and promotions, but we'll get to this. None of this means anything. I just was thinking, I read this article about this book, and it talked about how Tolstoy is able to talk about life as experience and also as meaning, which is superhuman. So life is experience is humanity, like human, and then life as meaning is superhuman, and he's able to talk about them at the same time. And that's what art does. That's what masterpieces of world literature, I think, do. But as a human in our own being, that's really hard to do, to like yeah. be experiencing it in this moment and also be thinking 
like I wrote a short story once about what what it would be like to watch your child being born as the mom and like how hard it would be to be like in this experience but also like contemplating the meaning of it all as it's happening and that's just one of the costs that we have as being human is that we especially with dying like as we're dying we can't understand the the meaning of it because we're dying every day but we're not like sitting here right understanding the superhuman meaning of it if that makes sense it totally does i think we need to forgive ourselves a little bit i mean i i i mean how often does tim mcgraw really live like he was dying i doubt it you know what i mean i doubt it i think we can make i think we can make small slight progress on this front i think we can if we remind ourselves, I think that's why those Roman generals had this person in their ear. You are more or less like, oh yeah, the sandwich, I'm going to die. I better enjoy this because I only have 8,432 more sandwiches left. So I better enjoy this one because the, the the sands are slipping through the, the hourglass, you know? We can make slight progress on that front, but Melissa, you're right. Life is overwhelming. There's like traffic and chores and laundry and papers and Sydney, you're right. You can't live it. This is why I love Wordsworth so much. You can't live it and 100% of the time know that you're living it. <laughs> it. You just can't. So I forgive these people for being like, oh, my promotion, my this. I even forgive Preskovia, his wife. This is on page, now let's really move here. Page six. Pyotr Ivanovich asks Preskovia, uh, did he suffer much? And she says, ah, terribly, the last, not minutes, but hours. He didn't stop screaming. For three days in a row, he screamed incessantly. It was unbearable. I can't understand how I endured it. It could be heard through three doors. Ah, what I've endured. Tolstoy is a genius. You know, in this little snippet of dialogue, he's he's making us stare at something ugly about human nature, our self-centeredness. You know, what does Yvonne's suffering mean? It, it means my suffering. I don't know how I endured it. I think that's so wonderful. But also this three doors, you know, what did she do? She didn't look at death in the face. She put three doors between herself and death. She didn't want to face it. She wanted to block it out and ignore it. Maybe I've already partly answered this question. Is it wrong for them to go want to play bridge with each other? Should we be, I'm, you can you can hear my implied answer. Should we be so hard on them? What's, what's wrong with wanting to play cards? In our LDS faith tradition, like after a funeral, we go and eat jello salad. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And I'm like, how irreverent is jello salad? <laughs> but I'm like, of all the foods, it's the most <laughs> irreverent food. And I think to myself, well, I'm glad that we do that because we're alive. Yeah. We're, we're going to go live this life of which they don't get to anymore. And it just reminds us that we're alive. And in the Iliad, after uh, Patroclus is big funeral games they eat a huge meal and then they sleep the two yep. things that make us human they eat and they sleep yep the dead don't need those things so it's a sign that we it's a sign that we are alive it's a sign to each other let's like because when someone that you really love really love dies you a part of you dies with them and a part and a part of you wants all of you to die with them you don't want to go on living so the food and this is achilles he doesn't want to live he rejects the practices of the living, he becomes a kind of zombie, a kind of walking dead. So this meal after the funeral is assigned to all of the living gather around and they say to each other, okay, look, we are not going to go into the grave. We are going to go into the kitchen and we are going to do things that living people do. We're going to eat jello salad, you know? So I, uh, yeah, I get it. It's slightly petty. They're self-centered. They don't actually care about Yvonne. 
Um, but on the other hand, I think let them live, you know, let them, let them do what the living want to do. Yeah. So my cousin, like four years ago, he like hit his head playing basketball on like the concrete. Oh no. And he like had to go to the hospital and he was like in this coma. And when we found out the, the like news about this and stuff, we were sad and stuff. But I remember like afterwards being like, what do I like I was just doing homework and it felt yeah. weird to go back to doing homework, but that's what I had to do, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. or like some of the best cookies I've ever eaten were at one of my cousin's funeral. And it sounds horrible, but the mom was decorating everything and like making it nice. And I think like sometimes I can feel survivor's guilt. Like I need to keep doing this. I don't know what the boundary is here but I'm, I'm going to eat this, going yeah. to decorate this, help clean up, drive home, listen to music. Like it's this weird, what do I do area? I think Gerasim, when we get to Gerasim, I think he helps us answer this question. Why does Ivan Ilyich do anything? Why does he get married? What motivates him in life? What motivates any or all of his actions? What is his source of meaning? There's a quote on this. And it says, to say that he got married because he loved his bride and found her sympathetic to his view of life would be as incorrect as to say that he married because people of his society approved of this match. Yeah. And because society like expected him to, or it was the right thing to do. And it's really sad. So it's just kind of like an, a momentum. Like there's a wave that is pushing him. This is what my society does. So I'll just do it. Yeah. He does it not being aware. It's not that the bat, the match was bad. It's a fine match, you know, but it's just, he's not, his brain's not on. What is the cause of Yvonne's death? And why has Tolstoy chosen this to be the cause? It's a very strange way to die. Tolstoy must be choosing this on purpose. What do we think about that? He's climbing up a ladder, like checking to see if this drapery will look good. And then yeah. he falls and bumps his like side on something small. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that Tolstoy does it this specific way because it's not, it's like his life. It's like unexciting, not notable, nothing to write home about. Yep. And while climbing, he's, he's literally climbing a ladder, which is a symbol for what he's been doing in his career his whole life. And that the top of this ladder is something so meaningless, curtains, you know? So it's not as if he's, he's been climbing a life ladder towards something meaningful. It's, it mirrors exactly the way in which he's lived. It's a totally, totally ignoble and pointless and mundane way to die. So they lived. They all went on like this without a change, and it was all very well. Where's that syllogism? Caius will die because Caius is mortal. Help me find this. Um, oh yeah, this is this is this is such a great little moment. So I'm going to ask you why childhood becomes important in this book. So he gets sicker and sicker, and um, he remembers this syllogism from this logic text he studied at school. Caius is a man; men are mortal. Therefore, Caius is mortal. This had seemed to him all his life to be correct only in relation to Caius, but by no means to himself. This goes back to the denial. We don't actually acknowledge to ourselves that we are going to die. For the man Caius, man in general, it was perfectly correct, but he was not Caius and not man in general. He had always been quite, quite separate from all other beings. He was Vanya, with Mama, with Papa, with Mitya and Volodya, with Toys, the coachman, with a nanny, with and with Katienka, 
and with all the joys, griefs, and delights of childhood, boyhood, youth, was it for Caius the smell of the striped leather ball that Vanya had loved so much? Was it Caius who had kissed his mother's hand like that? And was it for Caius that the silk folds of his mother's dress had rustled like that? Was it he who had uh, mutinied against bad food in law school? Was it Caius who had been in love like that? Was it Caius who could, who could conduct a court session like that? His, his thoughts, even in the middle of his sickness, start to go back to childhood. He defines his, his, his whole self, his whole specialness, this feeling that he has that he should be exempted from death is rooted in his childhood memories. I don't have any particularly brilliant answer to this question. I just find it extremely telling. Why is childhood so important? There's a theme throughout the novella about distance starts in the beginning and they talk about the distance traveling to um, the funeral, but then there's distance emotionally and even distance physically. And I think childhood is the most distance from death. Interesting. Remember, was it Mr. Laurie in uh, Tale of Two Cities? He even says something very similar. He's getting old and uh, I can't remember who he's talking to. Maybe it's Miss Pross or maybe it's Jerry Cruncher. He says, uh, it's, the weird thing is happening to me is I get very old. I start thinking more and more about my childhood. That's all I can think about now. It's my childhood. It's this weird, it's this weird combination of distance and proximity because it's like a circle. We've traveled this circle. We're totally distanced from our childhood, but coming closer and closer and closer towards it. Old people talk more about their childhoods than their yeah. adulthoods, if that yeah. makes sense. And to me, like as a kid, I was like, oh, that's fun. It was kind of hard to relate, though, just because it was a different time. And I kind of wanted to hear more about their adulthood. But yeah. like, they don't want to talk about that. I don't know. I guess we just want to talk about like pleasant things. And childhood is very pleasant. In Frankenstein, too, you notice how as he's talking about his childhood, he's pretty happy. Like, it's the happiest we see him. There'll be moments where he's like, dead. You mean the monster? No. Um, Victor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how he's really happy. And I think we just, it's kind of hard for me to talk about this subject because I am still like pretty young and I'm like mm. propelling forward, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, um, There's this clear cutoff in Yvonne's life. Childhood was childhood was uh, foundational for him. The first years of what is it, law school were good. You know, they were kind of equivalents because he wasn't fully an adult yet. He was still a young adult. I don't know. I have this words worthy in theory that childhood is, and I don't, I don't want to over idealize childhood, but I think we have this intuition, this correct intuition that childhood is one of those rare times in our lives when the act of living and what Sydney was calling the act of noticing that we're living kind of coincide in a weird way. We go back to that time because it was a time in which we were in the moment and we knew what was meaningful. What was meaningful? My mother's hand. So I kissed it playing with this ball with my friends. You know, he had meaning and he misses that kind of primal ubiquitous bodily sense that he was living a meaningful life. Who seems to know how to act in the face of suffering and death? This is your hint to start talking about Garasim. Right, so let's just set this up. Why is Garasim? Why? How does Garasim know how to act the way that he does? So in so this is on page thirty-five. It's a very horrible little moment here. 
Yvonne slept less and less. They gave him opium and began injections of morphine to relieve the pain. Special foods were prepared. Special arrangements were also made for his stools. Again, Tolstoy is not letting us look away from the ugliness of death and decay. Special arrangements were also made for his stools, and this was a torment to him each time. This must be one of the most horrible aspects of illness and death, this kind of humiliation. A torment in its uncleanliness, indecency, and smell, in the awareness that another person had to take part in it. But in this most unpleasant matter, there also appeared a consolation for Ivan Ilyich. The butler's helper, Gerasim, always came to clear away after him. Gerasim was a clean, fresh, young mujik, grown sleek on town grub, always cheerful, bright. At first, the sight of this man, always clean, dressed Russian style, performing this repulsive chore, embarrassed Ivan Ilyich. Once, having gotten up from the commode, and being unable to pull up his trousers, he collapsed into the soft armchair, looking with horror at his naked, strengthless thighs and their sharply outlined muscles. Gerasim in heavy boots spreading around him the pleasant smell of boot tar and the freshness of winter air came in. Gerasim, obviously restraining the joy of life shining in his face was not to offend the sick man, went to the commode. Gerasim, Ivan Ilyich said weakly. Gerasim gave a start, evidently afraid he was remiss in something. And with a quick movement, he turned to the sick man, his fresh, kind, simple young face, only just beginning to sprout a beard. What, sir? I suppose this must be unpleasant for you. Excuse me. I can't help it. Mercy, sir. And Gerasim flashed his eyes and bared his young white teeth. Why shouldn't I do it? It's a matter of you being sick. How does Gerasim treat him? And why is this a consolation for Ivan? And how did Gerasim get this way? Ivan Ilyich says the worst torment was the lying the line that he wasn't dying, he wasn't sick. And Garrison isn't subscribing to that lie. He's like, no, you're sick. You're suffering. Yeah. Like, let's let's confront this. This moment that Tolstoy describes, like, it made me cry where Yvonne's legs are on Garrison's shoulders. This just intense, like, savior figure almost where yeah. he is not, Garrison's not just an onlooker, but he's, he's compassion in body. He's suffering alongside mm-hmm. Yvonne. First of all, not lying. This is what is said on page 37. The main torment for Ivan Ilyich was the lie, the lie that for some reason acknowledged by everyone that he was merely ill and not dying. Gerasim won't pretend. He won't pretend that Ivan is not dying. So he acknowledges it. This is an immense comfort to Ivan. Truth. The truth is an immense comfort. But also, I, I can't... You're right, Sidney. This moment of the legs, Ivan feels that the legs... The pain goes away when his legs are elevated. It's like, put that cushion there. No, no, it's not quite enough. It's like, put put my legs on your shoulders. They just sit there together. And this is really the only thing that alleviates any of the torment for Ivan. It's extremely moving. This touch, I think it's something that, I don't know, I can't quite explain it. It's, it's kind of a mystical thing happening here, this physical contact. Where is his wife? Three doors away, you know? Three doors away. Where is his friend Piotr playing bridge? Where is Garesim? He's touching his body. I think touch is like so, so key, so central. So Yvonne doesn't know it, but he's craving this kind of intimacy. I don't even think, I mean, what are what is the medical explanation for how the pain goes away? I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was no medical explanation, if it was just this warmth or this, this presence. Garesim's presence, the body being touched by another body, that's what makes the pain go away. A little bit later, I was just reading, it says that uh, he liked talking with him and he did it easily, willingly, simply, and with a kindness that moved him. 
Yeah. And I think it's a reminder of King Lear and like that's what he wanted. He was at that same phase. I need someone to at least metaphorically like hold my legs and like be there for me. Indeed. And obviously <laughs> they weren't. And um, speaking of doors closed, Regan Regan closes the door on the storm, you know. It's yeah. just that's a good metaphor for, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very interesting how sometimes you just like want a win or you want someone to be there or you want someone to tell. I'm glad that he has his butler, but I'm just sad that it's not his wife or um, like his daughter or someone like that. It feels like Tolstoy saying rather explicitly, like the way to deal with death is be close to it. Be part of it. And, and that is like Garrison, he has this, this moment at the end of chapter seven, he says, we've all got to die one day. Why shouldn't I give you a hand? And I hope that in me giving you a hand, like when I'm dying, someone gives me a hand. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think when we're talking about distance and like the family, Tolstoy is like, please be close to death so that when you die, you can have some of the same, you can have that, that, that mercy. Be close to death. This is one of the main motivations that children, that, that parents get their children pets. You know, I've had a couple, we've got some fish. So we have fish funerals, me and my kids. We've had two fish funerals. Our turtle sadly died. So we had a turtle funeral. And I, I, I made it a point to like make it a ceremony and get the kids helping me to dig this hole. And let's get a box for the turtle. Our turtle's name was King Turtle. That was what my son wanted to name his turtle, King Turtle. So I got, like, okay, Isaac, go get a box for King Turtle. I made him choose the box. I made him help dig the hole. I made them put the dirt back on the hole. I want them to see death. This is like a horrible statement for a father to utter, but we put closing doors to it, blocking ourselves off from it, you know, is just a recipe for disaster. So we have to baby step. We have to help each other baby step our way into being able to look at it. The doctors are kind of the opposite of Gerasim because they kind of, they're going through this pantomime. Oh, there's still hope for you. Oh, if maybe we'll try this new medicine and, oh, it's like, I won't actually like look you in the eye and tell you, you are dying, you know? So that's a mental torture to him. Ivan is not a very religious man. This is not a very religious society or culture. He wept. So this, I'm now on uh, chapter nine, page 45. He wept over his helplessness, Ivan did, over his terrible loneliness, over the cruelty of people, over the cruelty of God, over the absence of God. Why have you done all this? Why have you brought me here? Why, why do you torment me so terribly? What for? This is the question that he arrives at. What for? Then he quieted down, not only stopped weeping, but stopped breathing and became all attention. It was as if he were listening not to a voice that spoke in sounds, but to the voice of his soul, to the course of thoughts arising in him. Now, I I, I do want to read this, and I want you to help me not interpret it. I don't like that word, but I want your reactions to it. The voice inside of him says, what do you want? What do you want was the first clear idea expressible in words that he had, that he heard. What do you want? What do you want? He repeated to himself. What? Not to suffer, to live, he replied. To live? To live how? Asked the voice of his soul. Yes, to live as I lived before, nicely, pleasantly. As you lived before, nicely and pleasantly? Why do you think his inner voice retorts in that particular way with a kind of like the implied question is, Really? He's being asked to think, was it actually nicely? Was it actually pleasantly? Like, really, let's break this down because you're missing something, Yvonne. 
that the life you don't actually want that you want you lived a life that was not a life yeah yeah um life is more than living pleasantly and decently and i just feel like he didn't get that memo <laughs> like it's yeah like you want are you sure you want to go back to like shopping for couches that's what you're on your deathbed and you're you're basically screaming at God, why, why, why give me my life back? Because I really miss shopping for couches. No, this can't be this can't be what you want. You must want something else. So what? We're gonna get there in a minute, but I want to before we do, more questions come up. Something's not right, something's not right. Chapter 10. Another two weeks went by like this. Lying almost always face to the wall, he suffered all alone the same insoluble suffering and thought all alone the same insoluble thought. What is this? Can it be true that it is death? And an inner voice replied, yes, it's true. Why these torments? And the voice replied, just so, for no reason. For no reason. This is one of the most powerful moments in the book to me. I love this moment. What is this inner voice telling him for no reason? I don't know if it's a comfort that there's no reason that this suffering is just, it is. For me, I read that and I thought to myself, I was thinking of my own suffering and I thought, Oh, that's kind of nice. There's no reason yeah. for this suffering. Like, oh, phew, you know? I'm totally on board with you, Sydney. On first blush, it doesn't seem like it should be a relief, but I'm immense. I find this immensely consoling. Like, it's not because you were bad. It's not because God has picked you for it. It's not because it's this necessary ingredient of some larger plan. It's not because it's the only way to grow. There's no reason. What a relief. What an immense, immense relief. It just is. It just is. It's hard to describe why that's such a relief. Yeah, that's a super interesting point that I hadn't thought about, but I definitely agree. Like <laughs> in some relationships or some stuff, you're like, okay, what was I supposed to learn from that or whatever? Yeah. And it's like, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't have to explain the cosmic mathematics. Yeah. Don't try. Don't stress out. He avoided suffering at all costs throughout his life. Like when he realized his marriage and his kids, like were he would have to like get deeper with them and getting deeper requires right. some pain and stuff. Yes. He like purposely stepped back and was like, no, no. And so I think it's interesting in this situation, how he's given this pain that he can't escape and he can't run away to work or anywhere else right. from. Weirdly, there's this weird detail, weird detail, heartbreaking detail that he actually had two children who died. Remember this? And the narrator just kind of tells us this, two children of his died. Seemingly, that this has no effect on him. He just kept living his life, you know? Okay, let's keep going. It would be possible, so this is at the very end of chapter 10, it would be possible to explain it if, it, if I were to say to myself that I have not lived as one ought, but that cannot possibly be acknowledged. He has not lived as he ought, but doesn't want to acknowledge that. So even at the very end, he's in a kind of denial. What if my whole life has been not right? I think maybe we've partly answered that question. How has his life been not right? Well, in Come Follow Me, um, <laughs> this is random, but it ties in, I promise. Um, Martin Harris was asked to give up his farm and stop like coveting his own land. And as I was in this group, I was like, I remembered this novel. And I was like, oh my gosh his life hasn't been just right because he's 
in if Martin Harris had focused on his land and his property, like he would have missed the bigger picture and you yeah. know, like the huge thing here. And so I think his life wasn't right in that he was coveting his own stuff. It had no and, bigger picture. Yeah, he did. The bigger picture was was drapes, you know. That yeah. was that was his purpose. Say like humans need to have a bigger purpose and that purpose could just be like being nice to kids or like being Absolutely. a good person. And you don't have to change the world. I think that's a dangerous well, like you can conquer windmill giants like for sure but like you can't get too involved in the dreams if that makes sense and i just think that he had no dreams and he was passive and had nothing (laughs) it's really sad no we talk a lot about ambition in this class and it can be totally domestic you know be the best father in the world that's the most important thing sydney and i think it's easier to follow the rules than it is to love and that's what Yvonne did his whole life. He followed right. society, he conformed and he forgot to love. And I know that sounds cliche, but he forgot to smell the leather on the ball. He forgot yeah. to kiss the hand. He forgot to see any type of interiority in anyone else. So then when it came to his own, he was like, what is this? What am I supposed to do with this? My inner yeah. voice? <laughs> That's right. The dialogue is so wonderful. That's so great. Um, uh, he he starts to budge. His wife says, please take communion. And he says, oh, okay, fine. He doesn't really want to. I see that as a sign that the ice is melting and he's learning at the very end how to be compassionate. He has this horrible dream about this black sack that he, he wants to fall through, but doesn't want to get stuck in. He's trying, he, he's like at the bottom of it, but he can't get all the way to the bottom. It's a horrible dream and a wonderful symbol, I think, you know, for what it must feel like to be almost dying. This So this is at the very end, page um, 52. This was at the end of the third day, an hour before his death. So he just spent the past three days screaming in pain. Just then the little schoolboy quietly stole into his father's room and went up to his bed. The dying man went on howling desperately and thrashing his arms about. His hand landed on the boy's head. The boy seized it, pressed it to his lips, and wept. Just then Ivan Ilich fell through, saw light, and it was revealed to him that his life had not been what it ought, but that it could still be rectified. He asked himself what was right and grew still listening. Here he felt that someone was kissing his hand. He opened his eyes and looked at his son. He felt sorry for him. His wife came over to him. He looked at her. She was gazing at him with a despairing expression, open-mouthed, and with unwiped tears on her nose and cheek. He felt sorry for her. Yes, I'm tormenting them, he thought. They're sorry, but it will be better for them when I die. He wanted to say that, but he was unable to bring it out. Anyway, why speak? I must act, he thought. He indicated his son to his wife with his eyes and said, take him away. Sorry for you too. Can it, can it be rectified, Sydney? I mean, I think he's learned the lesson that hopefully we learn in childhood, which is like our being, our it, the very breathing in and out and our feeling and our emotion and our pain, it affects other people. Mm. And it's almost like the first moment. And this is why I think the structure is this way. It's like, that is, that is coming to life. When you are aware of the influence you have on other people, that is true living because we aren't islands and we aren't vacuums. And I think that's a theme Tolstoy has in all of his, his writing is like, we need to understand that who we are as just a human 
part of being human and how we need to live is to see the suffering and the reality and validity of other humans. It's like he's never really felt empathy for his family until the very, very, very end. I love this. It could still be rectified. It's not too late. It's never too late. Sydney inspired me to realize that the good that you do outlives you. And on the flip side, like, so does the bad. Um, But why should you live? Why should you desire anything? Why do anything? I think you need to keep in mind that your actions impact thousands of people and they have the potential to potentially change the world. And so your good that you do does outlive you. And so I think that he realizes here that he could still do some good and, and have that like outlive and be something that they remember and keep with them. So I think it's, it's, it's a really sad death, but I, at the same time, it's really, really good. I feel the same way. I have two more questions. I'm going to really try to squeeze them in without keeping you guys too late. What is death? That's my first question. And my second one will be, why doesn't Tolstoy spell out the moral lesson for you? So those are the last two questions I want to talk about. What is death? And we're kind of intuiting these moral lessons. We're kind of extrapolating them. Why doesn't Tolstoy elaborate the moral lesson was? Yeah. So what is death? He looks for his pain, how good and simple he thought. And the pain, he asked himself, what has become of it? Where are you, pain? He became attentive. Yes, there it is. Well, then let there be pain. And death, where is it? He sought his old habitual fear of death and could not find it. Where was it? What death? There was no more fear because there was no more death. Instead of death, there was light. So that's it, he suddenly said aloud. What joy. For him, all this happened in an instant, and the significance of that instant never changed. For those present, his agony went on for two more hours. Something gurgled in his chest. His emaciated body kept twitching. Then the gurgling and wheezing gradually subsided. It is finished, someone said over him. He heard those words and repeated them in his soul. Death is finished, he said to himself. It is no more. He drew in air, stopped at mid-breath, stretched out, and died. So what's death? If this isn't too stupid of a question. I heard once that Tolstoy doesn't see death as a destroyer, but a great reorganizer. And it seems to me that death is not this event that that occurs and and ends something, but rather is like a culmination of things. Mm. We talked about at the beginning how we death is something that we we push away and we distance ourselves from, and it's it's seen as negative and dark and evil almost in some ways. But it's so unifying. Death is the unifier, not only yeah. because we all experience it, but when someone dies, I mean, we're unified. Like no one talks ill of the dead. It's the goodness. And these are kind of scattered and half-baked, but I just think that death is reorganizing and redefining what it is, what mm-hmm. what, what it means to be. Mm-hmm. It's. I once heard it, wonder, I think it's Saul Bellow, the novelist, Nobel not, winning novelist, who says that it's the black backing I'm going to get this wrong. It's the black backing that gives mirrors their ability to reflect or their luster. You know, it's the, it's the context that gives everything else. It's not a thing that you can like grab and touch. I am now holding death. So I love this very last moment. Like, what is it? Where is it? It wasn't a thing. I have, you don't arrive at death. It's not a place. It's not, it's not, it doesn't happen in one second. 
it is a context. It's the sh- it's the shading that gives everything in life its significance. Um, I have a question now. The reader is forced to ask, how can I make my life less like Yvonne's? I mean, I think that's the implicit question. We're being told his life wasn't right. So we're being forced to ask ourselves, how can I make my life less like his? Why doesn't Tolstoy just tell us how to live? Why doesn't he coerce us? There's a quote I saw walking up the JFSB this morning from Thomas Monson, and it said, like, to listen is one thing, to learn is another. And um, I think, like, reading this book and going back to the format of it, like, it's built so that we can learn. And, like, um, if he was to explain how to avoid this or something, I think that we would just, like, read it and, like, listen to it but we wouldn't learn anything. But I feel like from his story, it's a little bit haunting voice in the back of our head right. and we, we learn from it. And so we can act upon it. And so that's why I think that he doesn't go into too much detail of the show versus tell. I think it would be unfair for and ruin the art, the art of the novel. If at the end there's a PS how to live. I want it and it would be really great. But I think he's saying, Hey, I'm giving you this story about death because I think in death you find meaning in life and that's your job. Like as the reader to figure out, but I'm just juxtaposing these things, this living death and then the actuality of death. And you have to reconcile that. You have to, what is a masterpiece? One criteria I think is that a masterpiece forces you to ask your own questions and seek your own answers. A masterpiece doesn't insist on answering the questions for you. Tolstoy takes us not to the answers, but to the questions, shows us the questions and says, you have to figure this out yourself. It's very active. It gets you involved. It gets you involved. It's not a passive experience. If there was this coda that says, this is how to live, we would read it and it would we wouldn't absorb it. It would be too passive. It would skip off of our brains like a stone off of a pond, you know? So a masterpiece is a book that you that invites you to wrestle with it, that gets you active in the thinking through of these questions. Yeah. I sorry, I I could talk about this novella for a long time. Well, I we, just want I, to say one more thing. Luckily we have one more hour in class, but I know it's it's <laughs> like we should we should do day-long podcasts. But yeah, go for it, Sydney. I just really appreciate, there's a few things. You've talked about in the class, like seeing ourselves like the villain, Mr. Farge and all that kind of idea. Tolstoy doesn't just talk about his characters in a way that puts figures in a story, but he develops these characters where you like see yourself in each one of them. And I think that's something about this novel. So he has death at the beginning, this like seriously, like the death of Yvonne, and then he has a dying man, but then he has all of these interactors with death. And so I think, his lesson on how to how to live is really like how to deal with dying and he shows that with each character garasim his wife and the friend and anyway i just wanted to say that and the boy too it's like he comes up and kisses his dad how horrifying that must have been how brave that little boy must have been to do that i just find that the most heartbreaking moment i love that there is no villain who's the villain in this that's one of the ways tolstoy is so great you know there's no villain Everyone is a fully complex and three-dimensional human being. I see myself in all of these people. They're all flawed, but they're all capable of fixing their mistakes, capable of bravery, capable maybe of love in some way. I mean, some more than others, of course, but yeah, he knows what a human is. Tolstoy knows what a human is. 
Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much. An exceptional chat. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. If roughly half of all poetry ever written has been about love, it's possible that the other half has been about death. So there are many great death poems to choose for the poem of the day. Here is just one of my favorites by Dylan Thomas. It's called, And Death Shall Have No Dominion. And death shall have no dominion. Dead men naked, they shall be one with the man in the wind and the west moon. When their bones are picked clean and the clean bones gone, they shall have stars at elbow and foot. Though they go mad, they shall be sane. Though they sink through the sea, they shall rise again. Though lovers be lost, love shall not, and death shall have no dominion. And death shall have no dominion. Under the windings of the sea, they lying long shall not die windily. Twisting on racks when sinews give way, strapped to a wheel, yet they shall not break. Faith in their hands shall snap in two, and the unicorn evils run them through. Split all ends up, they shan't crack. And death shall have no dominion. And death shall have no dominion. No more may gulls cry at their ears, or waves break loud on the seashores. Where blew a flower, may a flower no more lift its head to the blows of the rain. Though they be mad and dead as nails, heads of the characters hammer through daisies, break in the sun till the sun breaks down, and death shall have no dominion. Okay, up next will be a couple recordings, one about Chaplin's film The Kid, and another about Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own which I really hope you enjoy, as I hope you enjoy all of these readings. (laughs) ¶¶ 